Hi everyone, this is Drew Perot here, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries and host of this new podcast that Dr. Hyman, myself, and our team are launching, the Broken Brain Podcast. You see, the goal of the Broken Brain Podcast is to continue the conversations that Dr. Hyman started during the series and invite guests that we highly respect to join us here to dive deeper into the topics of brain health, longevity, and living our best life. For our inaugural episode, I have someone that I think you're truly gonna enjoy hearing from, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, one of the featured guests and experts in our Broken Brain docuseries. Dr. Chatterjee is regarded as one of the most influential doctors in the UK, and his mission is to change how medicine will be practiced for years to come. He's been called a pioneer in his methods and approach in getting to the root cause of treating illnesses and disease have been featured on the groundbreaking BBC television show, Doctor in the House, which is seen by over 5 million people on every episode and is shown in over 70 different countries around the world. He's the author of the number one bestseller, The Four Pillar Plan, and his much-awaited US book, How to Make Diseases Disappear, will be released this May 1st, 2018. Now, on to our interview with Dr. Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Drew, it's my pleasure to be here. How was the series for you? Did you have a chance to watch it and follow along uh, in the episodes that we put out there? Yeah, I thought the Broken Brain docuseries was fantastic. Uh, really... Lots of interesting experts from around the world with different skill sets. But the key for me was that there was lots of practical take-homes for the viewers. And that's really what I'm about as a doctor. Uh, that's what I really liked about the docuseries. Yeah, you presented the science for people. But actually, what can people actually do? What can real people do in their real lives? And I think the, the series actually uh, provided a lot of really practical take-homes for people. You're so good at taking health, which you've shared before that we've made so complicated and simplifying it for people. You have this great story about a patient, a young adult, uh, a young gentleman that uh, I heard the other day that I would love for you to share here as an example of how simple changes can truly make a powerful difference in a patient's life. Yeah, true. There's... Um... This patient was a few years back, and actually, a lot of what I did with him, actually, I did without really knowing all the detailed science of what was going on. It was a lot of intuition, I guess. But, you know, let me take you back a few years. I was in, a, in my Monday afternoon clinic, and I was, um, if I'm honest, I was running a little bit late. There was some patients waiting outside, and this 16-year-old boy comes in with his mother. His name's Devon. And basically, he tried to harm himself by cutting his wrists on the Saturday and ended up in the ER. Now, the ER doctors, they assessed him, they checked him over. He had a, uh, he had a full psych assessment and he was discharged. And he's turning up in my clinic on Monday with a, with a letter from the ER saying, can you please uh, start Devon on antidepressants? Now, something didn't feel right to me. I knew... Yeah, I sort of knew his family. Uh, I'd never picked up a problem before. I, I thought these are a pretty well-balanced, well-grounded family. Why is a 16-year-old boy 
turning up at the ER having tried to kill himself, right? It just didn't add up. And I, I couldn't just prescribe an antidepressant without trying to figure out what was going on. So I spent a bit of time, I tried to figure out what's going on here. What are the possible factors that might be causing this or at least contributing to this? And, you know, my time was running out. People were waiting outside and I couldn't figure it out. So I said to him and his mother, I said, hey guys, can you come back tomorrow at the end of my morning clinic? I could spend a bit longer with you. They came back and at the end of that conversation, I felt that that boy's use of social media wasn't helping his mental health, okay? I'm not saying that was a whole, you know, the only thing that was going on, but I thought, hey, this is not very healthy, right? So I said, hey, Devin, would you consider reducing it? Would you, would you like me to help you understand how we might be able to reduce that? And he said, hey, doc, is that going to make any difference? I said, look, Devin, I don't know, actually, but I think it might help. So we came up with an agreement that he was going to try every morning for one hour he was not going to put on his smartphone. He was not going to go on social media. And he came back seven days later. And I said, hey, Devin, how are you doing? He said, well, you know, I'm still not great, but I'm sleeping better. I'm less up and down throughout the day. I feel less reactive to things going on. You know, so I'm, I'm definitely feeling a little bit better. Now, don't get me wrong, Drew. Okay, I'm not saying that he was, he'd got rid of his depression. Nothing like that. Okay, he was just starting to show signs of improvement. But more importantly, he was bought in. Right? He was like, okay, this is making a slight difference. So then we extended this over the next few weeks to being two hours in the morning and two hours before he went to bed, where he would not go on this modern technology. He would not go on social media. And bit by bit, he started to improve a little bit more each time. You know, I think one evening, uh, I, was, I was just scrolling through, I think, Twitter, and I was reading some science on um, diet and mental health. So next time he, he comes in, I say, hey, you know, Devin, what are you eating? You know, and, you know, like many 16 year old teenagers around the world, it was not a fantastic diet. It was full of sugary processed junk food from from morning right through to the evening. And he was just eating all throughout the day, all this junk, basically. So I said, hey, Devin, did you realize that actually when your blood sugar is going up and it's crashing down again, right? This is not just a blood sugar issue. This is not just an energy issue. So you're not, you don't just need to eat more to keep you going throughout the day. What is happening is if your blood sugar starts to fall rapidly, as it often will do two or three hours after eating foods like this, that is an alarm sign to your body. And when your body is, is feeling under threat, when it gets that alarm sign, it releases stress response hormones such as cortisol, such as adrenaline. And those hormones can have a negative impact on your mood hormones. So actually, the food that you're eating might be contributing to your mood. It's like, really? I'm like, yeah. So I drew him a little picture. I showed him what happens and what the sugar does and how it comes down. And he was like, well, so what can I do? I said, well, you know, let me help you understand how you can change a few things in your diet to keep your blood sugar more stable through the day. So, you know, lots of more healthy natural fats such as avocados and olives and nuts, uh, you know, things like this instead of those muffins and those bagels and those sugary treats, right? And, you know, again, he's starting to show little signs of improvement. And then, you know, what happens is he stops coming in, right? I don't see him for a while. And six months later, I'm just coming into work as usual. And I'm checking my mail and I open a letter. And there's a letter there and it's from his mother. And it says, Dear Dr. Chatterjee, I just want to thank you. Um, Devon is like, he's it's like a different boy. He's happy at school. 
He's got a really tight group, uh, circle of friends. He's engaging with his community. He's got hobbies, which he plays at the weekends. I just want to thank you. He is just doing so, so well. But Drew, let's just think about that for a minute, okay? This is a 16-year-old boy, right? I could have given him his label and reinforced that you have depression, okay? You need this pill, this antidepressant pill. And, you know, this is about five years ago, right? And that boy is still doing very well, okay? So he could have had this label. He could have been on a prescription medication for the last five years now, okay? And what does that do to you psychologically as a 16-year-old sort of being given that sort of stamp that I am somebody who has depression, whereas by making some small changes in his lifestyle, it had a synergistic effect that over the course of six months got to the position where actually he was he was doing great and continues to do great. Now, look, I don't want to oversell this, Drew, right? I'm not saying this happens in every single case, right? What I'm saying, though, is that we're over-prescribing, we're over-medicating people, and we're giving people labels. And this boy, just by making small, achievable changes in his lifestyle, right, we started to improve his mental health. And, you know, you mentioned the name of my, 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 my US book and my TED talk, How to Make Disease Disappear, which is quite controversial. But this is the point I'm trying to make. This boy was diagnosed with a disease, right? In inverted commas, depression, right? And I was meant to start him on antidepressants. But by trying to examine all the factors in his lifestyle and his environment that might be contributing, and by helping him make small changes, we were able to make that disease disappear, right? That's the point. And I think the really something that's really key a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I've got patients. Oh, you know, doctors might say, I've got a 16-year-old patient. You know, they're not going to make changes. You know, patients don't do what we tell them to do. But here's the truth. When we connect with them, when we communicate in a language that means something to them, that they resonate with, I find that people do want to make those changes. Mm. You know, most people would say a 16-year-old boy is not going to change his social media habits. He's not going to change his diet. Well, a few years ago, this boy did exactly that because I treated him like a partner. You know, I explained that this might work. I explained why this might be relevant. You know, I drew him a little picture. I showed him when you're eating this food, this is what is happening. And this, you know, he got it. And when he understood it, he's like, okay, tell me what I can do, doc. Mm. Right. And so for me, I learned a lot with this case because this was before I went on my journey around the world to try and learn from experts, some new tools to help my patients. I think I understand a lot more now about the science of what went down. But the point is, the science is complex, but the practical take home is actually very simple. That's incredible. What a beautiful story. Where did this thinking come from? You learned a lot of great things in medical school and how to support people and deal with acute problems and how to prescribe medication. But where did this level of openness come from that I'm going to think outside of the box? Most people that are listening to this podcast series right now and have seen the docuseries Broken Brain, they're thinking, I wish I had a doctor that was like that. What has happened in your life and what experiences did you go through that led to this level of openness? I think it's a number of things, Drew. Um, you know, I've been seeing patients now for nearly 20 years as an MD. And 
you know, my career's gone through a, a series of changes. You know, I, I left medical school. You know, I come from a medical family, right? Where I go to medical school, I think I'm going to learn all the tools that I need to get my patients better, right? And I started off in medicine. You know, I was like leading the cardiac arrest teams a few years in, you know, doing all the stuff that you think a doctor does, you know, with the defibrillators and all that kind of stuff, right? And I did my specialist exams in internal medicine and was doing nephrology, which is kidney medicine. And I don't know, I've always had this feeling that we, we, we're getting too specialized in medicine. You know, I, you know, I loved kidney medicine, but I didn't want to spend my career just seeing one part of the body. I thought medicine is bigger than this. And, you know, I made the rather unusual step to move from being a specialist to becoming a generalist or a general practitioner. I, I wanted to see everything, how to different symptoms, how do different things in the body interact with each other to, you know, that results in that patient's health and the way that that person is feeling. So, so I moved to general practice, but I really enjoyed what I was seeing. But honestly, I reflected and I, one day I thought I'm only helping 20% of the patients that are walking through my door, like really helping. I honestly felt that I, when I look back on my patient load for the day, I thought 80% of these guys, I've not really done that much. You know, I've given them a pill. I've kind of given them their repeat medication, but really get to the root cause and help them understand what's going on. You know, I, I didn't find I was doing that. And that was frustrating. And I, I didn't really know what to do with that because, you know, you've, you've trained a certain way. The system is set up a certain way. You know, I can look back now and realize that I was discontented, but I don't think I quite realized at the time. But then, you know, like for many of us, a, a big turning point occurs. And this happened when my my son, you know, the first time I'd had a, a child, I'd become a father, and my my son was six months old. And my wife and I and my son, we went on holiday to France, okay, just after Christmas. And we were staying in a friend's chalet there, and they hadn't turned up yet, so it was just us for a day or two. And my son had a cold, and he was having, you know, he had a snotty nose, and he had some mucus. But that evening, my wife called out to me because he, his arms suddenly went back. He went rigid and he stopped moving. And she panicked and she called out to me. Now I came over. I can still remember this so clearly. The room, everything. I came over. I sort of froze, but I thought, okay, he's probably choking on some of the mucus that he's producing throughout the day or his phlegm. So I, I had him in my, my hands. I turned him over and I slapped him on the back. I tried to clear his airway and nothing was happening. Uh, you know, in that moment, honestly, I wasn't a, uh, a highly trained physician. I was a, a panicked, scared father. And it was my wife who actually said, hey, come on, we've got to go. We've got to go to the, the ER now. And so we rushed in the car. We drove down the hill. It, it just snowed. The car skidded. I nearly killed us all trying to get to the hospital in a panic. Um, and we got there. And you could see that the doctors, the nurses were pretty worried, actually, because convulsions are not that uncommon at that age. They're what we call febrile convulsions. When you've got a fever, often young kids will have a convulsion. That's not usually a big problem. The fever is causing it, right? But he had no fever. And so that is what caused the alarm. Everywhere. What's going on? Why has this young baby stopped moving? They were trying to get IV lines in his neck. They were giving him drugs to stop him convulsing. We had to go down the mountain to a different hospital where they had more resource. He had two lumbar punctures that night trying to figure out what's going on. You know, my wife and I are in complete panic. What's going on? Uh, you know, uh, and a few hours later, one of the blood tests came back and he had 
very low levels of calcium in his body. And the normal serum calcium uh, level in blood in that hospital was 2.2 to 2.6. His level was 0.97, right? So it wasn't just low. It wasn't just very low. It was you know, almost non-existent. I said, like, why, why has he got low calcium in his blood, right? Um, and then again, a few hours later, another test comes back and it's found that he hardly has any vitamin D in his body. And, you know, vitamin D is a critical nutrient and it does many things in the body. It helps our immune system develop and function optimally. But the other thing it does is it's, well, one of the other things it does is it helps direct uh, where calcium goes in the body. It helps to determine your bone health, right? So basically, he didn't have enough vitamin D and over time that caused him to not have enough calcium and that's what caused him to convulse. But here's the crux of the matter. Vitamin D deficiency is fully preventable. Okay, fully preventable. I should have known that actually... The other part of the story is that two weeks before we went on holiday, I was starting to see issues with vitamin D in my practice, in my clinic. Right? And I started to read things. And you've got to remember, this is quite a few years back now, you know, seven, eight years back, right? You've got to remember that back then... We didn't know as much as we know now. You know, there is growing awareness, although really we still don't have enough awareness. But I thought, should my son be taking vitamin D? Now, in the UK, they're very strict. You know, as a doctor registered with the GMC, the General Medical Council, we are told we should never make decisions on our own family, right? It's good medical practice not to make those calls yourself, right? In fact, it's frowned upon a little bit. So I phoned my wife from work one day and I sent her the protocol that I was using. And I said, hey, can you take this to our GP and say, you know, look, uh, my, my husband's a doctor. He's just wondering, you know, should we be starting uh, vitamin D on our son? And can you give us a prescription? And she took it in to see him. She went with the, with the, with the, with the protocol and he laughed her out of the room. And he basically said, look, this is ridiculous. You could have just made this up and, and typed this up on, on a Word document and printed it out. Look, you're breastfeeding, you eat well, there's nothing you need to, you know, you're doing the great thing. He doesn't need anything like this. He doesn't need vitamin D. And the amount of times I have thought back, should I have been more pushy, right? But I didn't realize the urgency. I thought, okay, fine, you know, yeah, it's a bit frustrating, but let me look into this a little bit more. Now, obviously, two weeks later, he ends up having a convulsion and that forces the issue. But the point is this, Drew. I got an immunology degree at medical school, right? I'm qualified as a specialist, I qualified as a, um, you know, I got, I think you guys call it a double board certification, one in internal medicine and one in general practice. And I was unable to prevent my own son have a serious problem and nearly dying from a preventable vitamin deficiency. And that was it for me. I just, all right, okay, how can this happen? That was it. I, I was going to go on a journey. I was going to figure out why I didn't know about this. And I was going to learn how to get my son better. And what I mean by that is, and this is the point, modern medicine saved his life, right? He, in that moment, they gave him an intravenous calcium infusion to bring his level back up, right? But nobody told me, well, actually, he's not had vitamin D for the last six months, maybe. Maybe in the womb as well. That may have impacted his immune system developing. That may be why he's got allergies. That may be why um, he's got bad eczema, right? And... As I started looking into this and learning about vitamin D, 
I became obsessed. Right? I would spend two, three hours a day studying, learning new things and going, right, I am going to get my son back to full health as if this had never happened. That was my drive. I was obsessed. I felt guilty that I had in some ways allowed this to happen to him. And really that sent me off on this journey. I got my son fully better, back to optimal health. I then applied the same principles with myself and my family and we started feeling better and a lot of our little health niggles got better. And then I started applying the same principles with my patients and my patients started getting better in a way that I had not seen before. I wasn't simply suppressing their symptoms anymore. I was actually getting to the root cause of what was going on with them and it reignited my passion for medicine and you know, since that has happened, I've been on this mission with you. I, I want to spread the word as, as far and as wide as possible that actually there is so much that we can do that we don't realize can improve the way that we feel both today, but also reduce our risk of getting sick in the future. Powerful story. And I think that that story is an example of, I look at the work that you're doing in the UK, which is truly groundbreaking, you know, for a doctor who focuses on lifestyle medicine, functional medicine, to have a primetime show speaking directly to people. And you literally go into these patients' house and you stay with them and you teach them about food and you teach them about sleeping and you teach them about exercise and their emotional health. And on camera, you see these changes and it's an inspiring thing that the viewers watch. And I read the comments online on some of the clips on YouTube. And it's like that example in our head, we think of health as being so complicated. But when you take people through these little steps, it's now real. It's now real for the person. And I just want to acknowledge you for the incredible work that you're doing in the UK. Another thing that I want to highlight here is that you're also on a mission to increase the education and awareness of fellow doctors. I saw an article recently that you were featured in the BBC online where you were interviewed and a few fellow uh, doctors were interviewed about how you were raising up your hands and saying, we learned nothing about nutrition in medical school. And there's this national dialogue that's happening in the UK where I think that's important, especially for our listeners here to hear, because we take the doctor's word as complete gospel and people don't often feel supported. So now here you are with your work going directly to people. And if anything, I feel like the message that you're leaving people with is that you have to become your own doctor in a way, right? You have to take control of your health and through your protocol and your plan, you're showing people how to do it. Yeah, I think you raised some interesting uh, issues there, Drew. You know, going back to your very first question, which is the open-mindedness, which I think I've always had as a doctor. I remember early on as a doctor, I'd be reading some blogs online from uh, personal trainers, right? So with big social media followings, right? And I was reading stuff sometimes like, this is really interesting. This makes a lot of sense. You know, I actually could use some of those principles with my patient because, you know, I'd expand this out beyond nutrition. We don't learn about nutrition at medical school, right? In the, in the depth that I think we need today. We don't learn about sleep hygiene and the, what, what sleeping well or not sleeping enough does to our biology. Uh, we don't learn the in-depth nature of what physical activity does. You know, there's, there's so many uh, lifestyle issues and, and stress as well. We don't learn this stuff, right? But the point is, the reason we never learned this stuff is because 30, 40 years ago, Right? The health landscape of the United States 
the UK, other Western nations, was very different, right? Our model of healthcare evolved around um, going to see doctors for acute problems, you know? So a classic example would be 30, 40 years ago, you might have a chest infection or a pneumonia, right? You go see your doctor and your doctor says, hey, yeah, you've got the overgrowth of a bug in your chest that's causing your problems. I've got a, a treatment that can kill that bug. And they give you that prescription. You take it for seven days. The bug goes away. Your disease, your condition, your pneumonia goes away, right? Problem's fixed. And you go off and get on with your life, right? The problem is, is that the health landscape has changed now such that the majority of what we're seeing as doctors all around the world is chronic disease, right? And most chronic disease is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles. Now, just to be clear, you've got to be careful. When you say lifestyle, right, it implies sometimes that we're putting blame on people. Right? I'm not putting blame on anyone. I'm saying that in 2018, unless you're taking special care, right, the way it is easy to live life, the way that everyone is living around us means that the default for many of us is unhealthy choices, right? And I'm saying that as doctors, and you're right, we still have that place in society where people, they may see other people, they may see a dietitian, a nutritional therapist, a, a personal trainer, right? But many times they're then going to the doctor to check and say, you know, is this good? You've got to recognize that that doctor may not know. And actually your nutritional therapist, your dietitian, your personal trainer may know more in terms of nutritional lifestyle than your doctor. So I think we've got to be open about that first of all. The second thing is, and you're right, this BBC article came out recently and a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, why do doctors need to learn this? So we've got nutrition professionals. We've got physical, personal, you know, we've got personal trainers, uh, physical activity therapists, right? They're missing the point, right? They're, they're not understanding the complexity of what our job entails. This is not a substitute for having those experts, right? But if we don't know how powerful lifestyle change is, how literally you know, I could talk to you about food or movement or sleep or relaxation and what it does on a cellular level in a way that, you know, it changes our biology in a way that actually drugs just cannot do. We need to understand that but so that we actually prioritize it and that we actually will then refer out to the appropriate professional. But the other, the other thing is, right, we do a lot as doctors in the sense that if I'm a general practitioner, right, and a patient comes in to see me, what the problems do with their nerves or their brain, let's say, right? I don't just refer them on to the neurologist, right? I do a lot there with them. I only go to the neurologist. I do lots of things there that the neurologist might do, right? It's only when I, I sort of feel that they need that extra expertise or an extra bit of investigation, I send them on at that point. You know, we do plenty ourselves and we can... You know, this has to be a collaboration, but doctors not understanding this has got to change because if we don't know about it, we'll never prioritize it. And that's the key. You know, I, I taught a course recently in London in January to uh, with a colleague of mine to nearly 200 healthcare professionals, mostly MDs, right? And this is the first ever prescribing lifestyle medicine course that has been accredited by the Royal College of General Practitioners, right? Because Yes, I've shown these amazing results on television, right? But, and that's for the public. But I, you know, I got so much contact from medical students and doctors saying, how do we learn this stuff? I want to do what you did on that TV show in my practice. And so I thought, how do I actually 
really create change or tried to. And I thought, okay, well, let's, this training doesn't exist. So let's create it. So I spent six months with a friend creating a new framework so that doctors can simply understand what are all the key factors that could be playing a role here and how can we quickly come up with a lifestyle prescription, right? And it's all about collaboration with other healthcare professionals. And the feedback has been incredible because these guys, we had, we didn't just have general practitioners, we had oncologists, psychiatrists, gastroenterologists coming to learn from us about how they can apply these tools in you know, their everyday practice. And, and I'm really excited to know that the, the framework we came up with is now being applied by all these doctors around the country. We had some doctors travel from all around the world to come to our training course, and they're now applying it with their patients. And that's, you know, the solution is not just going to come from one area, right? We need everyone pulling together. Um, you know, the other thing that's really powerful about what you've done is uh, Dr. Hyman has this great quote. He says, you know, sometimes people watch Broken Brain. They see the reference to some material. They see that how vitamin D can help with depression or this can help with that. They go to their doctor. They talk to them. Often the first response is, uh, if a doctor is not open-minded, is that there's no research to back that up. It's sort of a catch-all default response that people do. And Dr. Hyman has this great quote. He says, your lack of knowledge of the research that's out there is not an absence of evidence. So not only are you teaching these doctors these protocols, what works, the power of probiotics, the power of this, the power of diet, movement, you're actually supporting it with evidence and science that's out there that they are just not familiar with. Yeah, Drew, I think what, what Dr. Hyman says is, is absolutely right and it's something we're always up against in this field of when we start practicing like this, that's always the, the thing that comes back, right? But you're right, there is so much evidence out there. Now, a lot of the time, the evidence for some of these things is not done in the same way that a drug trial would be done, right? A drug trial, for example, take 100 patients with this condition, condition X, right? 50 patients with condition X get this pharmaceutical drug. The other 50 patients with condition X don't get it. Let's run this for three months and let's see how many people still have condition X, right? And then you make that comparison. We do have some trials like that for the lifestyle changes that we're recommending, but often we've got a lot of suggestive, supportive evidence say that this could well work, but you know, often it doesn't work as quickly or as rapidly, and it doesn't lend itself to that kind of simple change this one factor, right, and see what happens. And the sort of concept I've sort of I talk about a lot in, in my work when I'm teaching doctors, I talk about it a lot in my in my new book, is this whole idea of a threshold, right? And this whole idea is, is that we, we're very resilient as human beings, okay? So let's say you were born all the way down here in optimal health and then all the way up here, right, you've got a threshold, right? We can deal with multiple insults and we're still under our threshold. What I mean is we could deal with um, a poor diet, right? Chronically being underslept, maybe being bullied at school, right? a breakup in our relationship, you know, each one of these, we're sort of building blocks, we're building blocks, we're getting closer to that threshold. And then, you know, what might happen is we have a period of stress where we, uh, you know, we lose our job. And then suddenly, we're over our threshold, right? We've just crossed our threshold. And that's when we get sick. And that's when the symptoms show up. 
And we think, oh, it was just that last thing that pushed us over. But it's the same thing as if in life, or if, if we're here now juggling balls, or I might be able to juggle one ball, two ball, three balls, and you might keep throwing me another one, four balls, and then suddenly you throw the fifth one in, right? And all the balls fall down. I've got to start again from scratch. And that's how I see chronic health. A lot of these things, like you say, vitamin D. Vitamin D, for some chronic conditions, may be 15% of the story, not 100%. So if you do a trial and say, these 50 people take vitamin D, these 50 people don't, is there a, is there a change? Well, hold on a minute. Maybe vitamin D is not the only answer. Maybe there's a combination approach that needs to occur. Maybe vitamin D is 25%, but also physical activity is 25%. Uh, whole food diet is 25%. And you suddenly add up three or four of those 25%, and now you've got 100%. Whereas when you just change one factor, you're only getting you know a quarter of the way there. And that's why I'm really into you know this one. My whole approach now, which I've really developed really over nearly 20 years of seeing patients because I'm all about what works with the patient in front of me, right? Research is great. I love research, but the research only goes so far because you've got to convert that research into what, what does that mean for that person in front of me? What resources do they have? What support they have? What's their willingness to change? What's easy for them to do? What's hard for them to do? Yeah. And you've got to convert it. And, and that's what I, the way I try and simplify health, whether you're talking about your physical health and your weights and your energy, or whether you're talking about your brain health, right? I have got something called a four pillar framework, health framework, right? That I, I go through, like you talk about doctor in the house, right? I saw and I showed to 5 million viewers each week in the UK, right? Which has now gone to millions around the world. I showed that a condition like type 2 diabetes can be fully reversed in 30 days, and that change can still be sustainable three years later without any input from me. Fibromyalgia pains for 10 years under multiple doctors on 20 pills a day, pain-free in six weeks, right? So that fibromyalgia pain has gone. Menopausal symptoms all gone within six weeks. All kinds of things. You know, I could go on and on, but the point is those diseases, a lot of them have disappeared. There was a lady with really bad anxiety and panic attacks. Her problem didn't, I didn't, her, 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 I didn't reverse her problem, but we got it 70% better in six weeks. In fact, when you were doing your interview with Broken Brain with Dr. Hyman, you talked about how you've decreased several multitudes of patients who've had anxiety. And I, I just want to touch on that a little bit more because so many people that had watched the series are suffering with anxiety and depression. So let's take that disease, right? Quote unquote. And in the traditional system, sometimes people say, well, it's just uh, something you have to live with. Anxiety is something you have to live with. Maybe now at least there's some concept that our lifestyle can play a little bit of a role, but for many years there, there wasn't. So let's take anxiety in the framework of your plan. And how is it that you've been able to help these people often in six weeks, uh, sometimes have no symptoms at all of anxiety. Walk us through the plan and how that relates to something like anxiety. Yeah. So that particular patient was a lady in her 30s who had had anxiety issues for over 15 years, panic attacks, right? Really having a profoundly negative impact on her life, you know, meaning that she doesn't have any uh, she limits her social interaction. Uh, she limits what she does with her family. 
Um, she has lots of compensatory behaviors with, um, you know, alcohol and uh, caffeinated soda drinks to, to help manage or what she felt was going to manage those symptoms. How would she cope? She was basically in this vicious cycle. She didn't know what was going on. She didn't know how to manage her symptoms. But actually what had happened when she was 19, she had a significant incident in her life, right? Which has affected her on an emotional level. And we feel and she feels that that was the main triggering event when her panic and her anxiety attack started. Okay, so 15 years ago, she has a traumatic issue happening. That prompts panic and anxiety. And then over 15 years, she develops lots of behavior, lots of lifestyle choices around that to help her cope, right? And I see her and she's in a mess. So she had been referred to psychiatrists and counsellors in the past. She'd gone a little bit, then she would stop engaging. She, She didn't find it helpful. She wouldn't turn up. She'd been tried on antidepressants. She didn't like the way they made her feel. So she would stop taking them because they weren't helping her and they were actually making her feel worse. You know, there are so many cases like this around the UK, around the world. And so I try to simplify things. I try to go, okay, look, let's just start from scratch. Let's just use this four pillar framework to figure out uh, in these four key areas of health, which I consider the four key pillars of health, food, movement, which people talk about a lot, but also sleep and relaxation. And I give them equal priority, right? I think that's what makes my approach a little bit different. I, I say these have all got equal importance and we need balance across all four. But essentially what we did with her is I helped her understand how the lifestyle choices that she was making, or she felt she had to make, were having a negative impact on her brain and her anxiety. And, you know, with her, we did start with diet, right? Um, I helped her understand how, well, the the first thing I I explained to her was the gut-brain axis, right? I said, did you know that there's an axis, there's communication between your gut and your brain? And she was shocked to hear this, right? I said, look, you know, we think of whether it's anxiety or depression or mental health problems, there's brain issues, right? There's a problem in our brain, right? We've had an emotional insult to our brain or we need to take a drug to improve the level of a uh, neurotransmitter or a hormone in our brain, right? But that's not always the case, right? We know over the last five, 10 years, we know that there is uh, this super highway of information between our gut and our brain and it goes two ways, right? The point is, is that the food that you're eating sends information from your gut to your brain, which can impact your mental health. Now, there are multiple mechanisms for this, Drew, right? We're still learning more about them. We know one of them is the vagus nerve. So vagus, I think, comes from the term in Latin, you know, wandering. It's this this wandering nerve that goes through the body and actually connects uh, our gut with our brain, right? But we know when you eat certain foods, and in particular, we're talking about fiber, so plant food, so lots of colorful fruit and vegetable, which is full of fiber. Basically, that fiber is food for your gut bugs, right? And a lot of scientists are calling our gut bugs, so these trillions of microorganisms that live inside us. A few years ago, I think it was in the, the journal Nature, someone said, these are your brain's peacekeepers. I love that term. So these gut bugs, which are nowhere near our brain, actually keep the peace up in, inside our brain. And we know there's multiple mechanisms. So for example, 
your gut bugs will eat that fiber and it makes something called short-chain fatty acids, right? People don't need to know that term, but what that means is it makes a compound like butyrate and butyrate can actually go to your vagus nerve in your gut and it almost like switches a light, it almost like turns on a light. So in your brain, a light goes off and knows, that, oh yeah, okay, so I've got butyrate there. And it then has a positive impact on many different pathways up in your brain. It's really quite remarkable when you think about it. But also that butyrate can go in your blood and it can travel around the body, not through your nervous system, not through that vagus nerve, and also get to your brain. And there are countless other pathways. You know, the body is very, very complex. The take-home point is this, right? There's communication between your gut and your brain, and there's communication between your brain and your gut. You know, people know that intuitively, you know, if they're nervous before an exam or a presentation, right? People feel nervous. They often feel they need to use the bathroom, right? Because that's the brain, the nerves in the brain, that emotional stress sending a message down to our gut, right? But here's the point. What if a lot of the problems that are going on in the brain are coming from your gut back up to your brain? So with this lady, we changed her diet from a highly processed junk food diet to a whole food. It wasn't even organic, her diet, right? It was just whole food. She cut out the processed junk and she would cook from scratch every day. And within six weeks, right? We did a few other things, but essentially within six weeks, her panic and anxiety attacks went down by 70%. 70%, right? This is not a full reversal. She still had emotional issues that really need dealing with with a trained psychotherapist, right? But the point is, there is so much that we can do with our lifestyles that we don't, we're not thinking about. And the point is, Drew, is that she had anxiety and panic attacks. I've got patients with mental health problems. I told you that story at the start of this podcast with Devin, the 16-year-old boy. But even the other patients I see in my practice, the other patients I, I helped with all these whole variety of different so-called diseases on the show, 80% of what I did right, was the same. 80, 80% was food, movement, sleep, and relaxation. Small changes in those four areas. What we don't realize is that if we make conscious changes to our lifestyle, we unconsciously change our biology. And sometimes it has reverberations that we don't even know. Sometimes people who have had anxiety and they watched the Broken Brain series, they try some of the recommendations from authors like yourself. They change their diet. They change this. They change that. They write in, not only do I feel less anxious, but that I actually have less back pain, which I never thought was related to anything that I was experiencing. Yeah, this is a wider point, Drew. This is the point that the body is interconnected. Right? For far too long, we've been reductionist as doctors, but also the public in terms of what's going on here. What's the one thing I need to change? You know, what, when we change our lifestyle, when we make a small change with our diet, a small change with our physical activity, right? Multiple pathways in the body start changing. And a lot of this comes down to something called inflammation. Now, now Drew, I don't know if you, you saw this study in 2016, right? There was a study that came from King's College London, right? And it got a lot of media coverage. I think I did a BBC interview on this study on the news. And it was brilliant. And it showed that for patients who've got depression, right? They measured markers of inflammation in these patients' body. If patients had high markers of inflammation, the antidepressants did not work. So they could predict with, I think it was 100% certainty 
which patients would respond to antidepressants or not. And they're basically saying, if you've got high levels of inflammation, antidepressants aren't going to work. Now think about this for a minute. Antidepressants are designed to change the level of a, horm- uh, of a neurotransmitter, serotonin, in your brain. But what if the problem isn't in your brain? What if the problem is in your body? What if the problem is inflammation in your body? Then why would giving you a treatment that's designed to increase something in your brain help? Of course it wouldn't. And so this study was, was really groundbreaking because it shows us that if inflammation, if body inflammation is the cause, right, let's treat the inflammation. Now, of course, on the news, they said, well, we surely we should get some anti-inflammatories now to treat that inflammation. And I was trying to say, hey, guys, look, there are so many things that we can do to reduce inflammation in the body. You know, changing our diet, changing our, our lifestyle, improving our sleep quality, taking vitamin D if we're low, um, you know, removing psychosocial stress, you know, a lot easier said than done. All these things can reduce levels of inflammation in the body. And you mentioned about back pain going or knee pain, right? I've had this before with patients when, let's say that one of the ladies on the show with type 2 diabetes, right? We completely overhauled our diet and she had had a six-year history of really bad ankle pain. And she was told she had arthritis, osteoarthritis. It's a bit of wear and tear because you're overweight, right? But here's the crazy thing. Three days into her diet change, her ankle pain disappeared and it's never come back. This is inflammation. This is the fact that the food that we're eating can either drive inflammation or switch inflammation off. So although for that lady, the diet was designed around her type 2 diabetes and reducing refined and processed carbohydrates to help her blood sugar, what what also happened is that by nourishing her body, by nourishing her microbiome inside her gut, which then communicates with your immune system, all her inflammatory markers went down and that's why her pain went away. So this wasn't wear and tear because she was overweight and had type 2 diabetes. This was inflammation. Get rid of the inflammation and not only does the type 2 diabetes start getting better and finally go away, with her case, her so-called arthritis also vanished. This is when I say how to make diseases disappear, right? Because it's controversial, right? You know, that's quite a controversial concept. I mean, we just need to, you know, reframe our idea of what disease is, you know? She was told she had osteoarthritis. You have got this condition. Well, here's the thing. She changes her diet and suddenly she doesn't have that pain anymore. She doesn't have osteoarthritis. And this is what I think all of us, you know, within the profession, the public, I want us to start reframing how we view our health, how we view disease. Uh, And that's what I'm really passionate about. Speaking of inflammation, um, when you go into somebody's house in the Doctor in the House series, you often start in the kitchen. And the kitchen is one of the best places because there's so much return on investment by focusing on food. In fact, you and Dr. Hyman joked in the Broken Brain series in your interview about doing a fridge biopsy. When it comes to looking in the fridge and helping people understand what the key foods are, there's some foods that are promote inflammation, and there's some foods that reduce inflammation in the body. Let's start off with what are the common foods that you saw in the series in people's house that maybe people think are healthy or not even that bad, but they don't realize are causing severe chronic inflammation in the body? The top culprits that I saw 
in it doesn't matter which house I went into because I looked in all of their fridges. I looked in all their pantries and their cupboards. But it is the, you know, it's the highly processed sugary foods. So, you know, and often these are marketed as, you know, healthy, low fat foods sometimes, you know, um, things like, you know, sugary breakfast cereals, bagels, a lot of the breads, a lot of the breads that you now buy, okay, they're not the same bread as people were eating 5,000 years ago. And that's, you know, it's really important. You I think it's worse in the US, right? In the UK, the majority of supermarket breads, if you flip the bread around and look at the ingredient label, it is amazing how many times that sugar is an ingredient in your bread, right? And so this is the when the whole story is about, you know, we talk about, you know, these populations in the past that have had, you know, they've eaten bread and whole grain breads and they seem to do pretty well. We've got to recognize that we're not having... The majority of us, when we make those choices, we're having highly processed uh, breads and sugars that actually drive inflammation. So for me, it's processed junk food. It's, uh, it's obviously your things like your, you know, your, your potato chips, your crisps, your, uh, your bagels, your donuts, but also things such as you know, so-called healthy bread. Start looking at those labels and see what's in it. And that was, you know, that was one of the key points I learned, Drew, was that these guys... Like a lot of the public just don't look at nutrition labels. Right? They thought they were even doing a good job. They, they thought were they were listening doing a good to job. the marketing. Yeah, they were shocked. In fact, there, there is one clip that is online. Actually, I will maybe put the put the link in the show notes. If I go into a a family's house and we literally clear out all that processed food, and literally that is pretty much eighty percent of what they were eating. But they thought they were doing a pretty good job, right? And here's why we're struggling with our with, with chronic health is that. People, you know, the majority of the food that we're exposed to actually is driving ill health and inflammation. So it's very hard for people. So it's it's really comes out to highly processed food, right? Because the reality is true is that what people need to understand is that food is not just calories. Food is information, right? So the three-way interaction that we really need to understand, I think, is, you know, I've got this this triangle, this really simple triangle that I, I've, I've put in my book, which is basically your food choices, which lead to your gut microbiome. There's an arrow there to your immune system, and it goes back to your food choices. And food, gut, and immune system, these are all intimately linked, right? And as the food choices you make will absolutely directly affect the composition of good bugs or bad bugs in your gut. And that will then talk to your immune system right? And that will also dictate what food choices you want to make, right? So it's a vicious cycle. So the reason you get so much return on your investment when you change your diet is that you're suddenly changing the composition of bugs in your gut. You're now sending positive non-inflammatory messages to your immune system, which is then helping encourage you make better food choices in the first place. And so the bad foods are those refined processed foods, the flours, the biscuits, the cookies, even the even the, the sort of so-called healthy breads, which often have lots of sugar and are highly processed. But instead of that, we want whole food that's minimally processed. So, you know, lots of colorful vegetables, lots of healthy fats, avocados, olives, nuts. You know, when we talk about brain health, you know, omega-3 rich food, in particular, fatty fish, it's a critical food for our overall health, including our brain health. You know, a lot of our brain is made up of fat, right? 
And a lot of that fat is what we call DHA. DHA is a kind of omega-3. And the best source of DHA is fatty fish. And there's some really good studies showing now that actually the levels of omega-3 in our diet, and you can actually measure this in, in your blood, the levels of serum omega-3 in your blood, right, is correlated with increased brain activity. But let's think about that. We're literally saying that the food that we are choosing directly impacts our brain, right? So very much, you know, I think all of us are proponents of, of you know, things like wild salmon and uh, anchovies and sardines. And if you're talking about cost, right, you're talking about cost, because that's a big issue for people these days, right? Sardines, anchovies, you guys use supermarket, you can get them very cheaply. Canned sardines, Dr. Hyman's favorite salad that he talks about in the series is that he takes avocados, some dark leafy greens, you know, cuts up a few vegetables, maybe some bell peppers, some cucumbers, and literally will open up a can of sardines, wild caught, so cheap. You can order it online through websites like Thrive Market or get it at Trader Joe's, dumps it in, a little bit balsamic vinegar, a little bit of olive oil, sea salt, pepper, and is that's the salad. Is it? It's yeah. easy. It's quicker than driving Yeah, 15 minutes. Spending, you know, a few dollars on fast food, it's quicker, it's faster, it tastes better, and it's actually good for your brain. Yeah, and I've, one of my staples in my pantry at home is canned sardines, right, and bottled anchovies. Because if I'm ever hungry, if I ever eat something, and I, I've got tea on kids, right, we will turn to that. And I've trained them that, you know, these are really good for your brain. Guys, what's your brain made of? DHA daddy, okay, what's got DHA, you know, and, and literally it's ingrained in them now. So, you know, my, my son had a spelling test last week and he's like, daddy, do you think I should have some anchovies before? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we're just starting that conversation. And actually that's a wider point for me, Drew, which is we're talking about brain health. We talk about inflammation we're talking about our, our well-being. You know, for me, yes, my son's illness was a big drive, no question, but the more I know about this, I've got two young kids. You know, they, I see them as blank canvases, right? That I can choose to put the right things in their body to give them the best chance at developing healthy, strong bodies so they can do whatever they want to do in life. And one of the simplest tips that I would give to people, if there's anyone listening who's got a family, okay? In, in my book, there's a, a rainbow chart, you know, and, and one of the recommendations I make in the, the food section is, you know, eat the rainbow every day, you know, and basically, can you eat five vegetables per day, ideally different vegetables, and ideally different colors, right? And how do I do that? So you can actually, you know, if people don't want the book, they can, they can print it off for free on my website, right? The, the rainbow charts. And I've, with, there's families all around the UK now who've got this chart on their fridge, and they're letting me know that this is just transforming the health of the family. Because what happens is this. When I'm at home, right, every evening when we sit around the dinner table, my wife, myself, my two kids, we've all got to tick off on the rainbow chart how well we've done on that day. So it's a game, right? How can we tick off all the colors? Uh, and, a, and, a, and a few weeks ago, what happened is my son, we were having dinner, and he said, oh, daddy, I've, I've not got red. I said, yeah, what are you going to do? You know, so he gets up from the dinner table, he goes to the fridge and, you know, my son is seven years old, right? He pulls out a red, a red pepper, a bell pepper. He cuts it in half and he chomps it at the dinner table. And with glee, he, he, he ticks off his, his red box. Now, he didn't do that because 
Although Daddy does sometimes. He didn't do that because I said, hey, look, it's got lycopene in it, which is really good for your heart, and it's got this phytonutrient. No, he's doing it because it's fun. It's a game. He wants his red tick. And I've used this with many families. It's, it's a really great way of engaging the whole family, almost gamifying health. Because that's what McDonald's is doing. Right? Exactly. McDonald's is putting in the toy. They're putting in this. They, kids are looking at it and they're like, okay, that's fun. That's enjoyable. I want to do that. We have to do the same thing in our own home. We got to do it. You make it fun. People want to make these changes because everyone wants to feel as good as they can. It's no Even question. kids. Even kids. And they respond very quickly. And, you know, when we talk, you talk about Dr. Hyman's salad, what he had putting in those dark leafy green veg. Uh, yeah, these things are full of phytonutrients. These are compounds that you get in plants right? That are really nourishing to our body. They do all kinds of different things. They have a positive impact on our gut bugs, right? They change what's going on in our immune system. They switch off inflammation. Things like blueberries, for example, right? Deep, you know, not just blueberries, blackberries as well. Very, very deep colors. They've got high levels of phytonutrients and antioxidants. Blueberries have been shown to help improve cellular aging, right? They've helped to improve our brain function. You know, this is how powerful these choices are that we can make or, or choose not to make that, that impacts everything in our body, including our brain health. And, you know, we, we think this is soft medicine. You know, we think this, oh, yeah, this is all very well, food and lifestyle. Where's the real medicine? You know, this is the real medicine for the 21st century, right? How you eat, how you move, how you sleep and how you relax this is the medicine for today. Incredible. Within that, you know, Dr. Hyman says the same thing that you were sharing, uh, Dr. Chatterjee, is that every bite we eat is literally in real time telling our genes how to express themselves. And when we can make that connection between what we eat and how we feel, it's a game changer for everyone. I want to talk a little bit more about movement. You know, even within the wellness world, we always knew that exercise is a good thing in general. So it's like, it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to see, but it's only been recently, even in the space of functional medicine that we've really connected the power of movement and its impact on brain health. Why is it that you think that there's been this resurgence and rediscovering movement exercise play where previously it was kind of seen as something that we're going to ignore a little bit. Or, and if you, want to be more fit and build some muscles, you focus on movement. If you don't, that's fine. You know, just focus on your diet and these other components. I think the reason is, is, you know, we've been very reductionist when we look at our health, when we, when, you know, the way we practice medicine for a number of years now. And, you know, we've always had this very simplistic conversation that, you know, movement of physical activity is simply to do with burning off calories. So, you know, if you eat too much, right, you can burn it off by working out more. You know, that's the sort of conversation we've had around movement. But really what's happening now is in the last five or 10 years, the research on all this, all these lifestyle changes, including movement and exercise, is, is just so overwhelmingly profound that we've, we're discovering that physical activity and movement are doing things to our genes, to our gut bugs, to our brains that we we don't have drugs that can do anywhere near what the what physical activity can do, right? We we we're understanding 
more science, such as, right, physical activity increases levels of something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Basically, this is a very powerful compound that's made in the brain that helps your nerve cells grow. Well, let's think about that for a minute. (laughs) We can improve the growth, we can increase the growth of our nerve cells by moving more, right? We don't have a drug, really, that can do that. There are some sort of compounds being tested at the moment, which might be able to, in some way, you know, in a small way, replicate some of that. But the reality is, by moving more, we can improve the levels of BDNF in our brain, right? This is game-changing for the way that we view lifestyle. This is game-changing for the way, you know, I said, these are thought to be soft interventions. You know, this is not the real medicine. Hey, if there was a drug out which would improve levels of BDNF in your brain, you would be hearing about it. You know, when you're in the States, because we can't see adverts for drugs in the UK like you can here, you'd see it everywhere, right? You say, go into your local pharmacy and buy this because this is going to improve levels of BDNF in your brain, right? This is where we're going in medicine, but also we've, we've forgotten how things are interconnected. You know that increasing physical activity right? Changes the composition of your gut bugs, right? Because the body is interconnected. And that's what I'm always about making small changes in these four key areas rather than trying to max out in one. I think you you do a little bit in each one, you get the synergistic effect. So, you know, we talk about movement. What am I talking about, right? You know, walking more, you know, increasing how much you walk has been shown to help reduce your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's disease, right? So, just generally improving our walking, how much we walk is a fantastic idea. Uh, the way I do it um, is, you know, I'm very lucky. My kids live um, 0.6 miles from school. So rain or shine, we walk the kids to school because it means that they're walking 0.6 miles on the way, 0.6 miles back. So every day they've got 1.2 miles in just from walking to school. And if I or my wife are dropping them and we're walking, we're getting 2.4 miles in a day just from doing what we have to do anyway. You've kept it simple. You've integrated it into your life. Exactly. I'm not going to the gym to do it. I'm just looking for opportunities. When I go to the grocery store, okay, in my car, I park at the other end. So I have to, I, I'm not looking for the nearest one to the, super, to the grocery store entrance. I'm looking for the further space. So I have to walk to, that, uh, to the entrance, Right? This, is, this is counterintuitive. We're always looking. Oh, I, I want to park as close as possible because I need to get, keep moving and get, you know, get my things done quickly. You know, if you need to take a bus or a train or even you're taking a car to work or to school, do you know what? Park it 10, 15 minutes away. Right? So you have to go to work anyway or you get off the bus one stop earlier and walk that last bit because that, it's about building these things into your everyday life. If you think it's just going to come from a gym three times a week, you know what? After a while, that's going to fade and you ain't going to be getting enough movement. So all these things are about building in small changes to your everyday life. But Drew, I really want to highlight something called strength training, right? I think that strength training has been very much undervalued in society, right? We, we associate strength training with you know teenagers and people in their 20s wanting to look buff and wanting to look good, right? But once you hit the age of 30, we're losing muscle mass every year. In fact, we can lose up to 5% of our muscle mass every 10 years if we're physically inactive. Why is that important? That's important because our lean muscle mass is one of the strongest determinants 
of how well we're going to be as we age, both for our weight, you know, uh, whether whether our, it's our blood sugar and type two diabetes or our brain function, right? So, the, here's the point, right? Why why have we undervalued strength training? So there's this really great study that was actually done on women, although I think this applies to men as well, and they compared people who did aerobic exercise versus strength training. And what was incredible is that both groups who did you know, aerobic exercise and strength training showed an improvement in elements of what we call that executive brain function. And what I mean by that is things like their, their working memory, their ability to modify their behavior in response to a changing situation. So that's a good thing. But actually the strength training group got something extra. They were the only ones who experienced improved powers of attention right? So that their attention was better and they were even better at resolving conflicts, right? Let's think about this for a minute. We're talking about doing some strength training. It's literally changing the structural function of your brain and how it's, and how it's dealing with things. And, you know, I realized this a few years ago. So I started telling my patients, hey guys, you got to prioritize strength training, you know, maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, three times a week in the gym. It's going to be really good. And they come back and see me a few weeks later said, how are you getting on? Uh, hey, Doc, you know, I've not had time. You know, I've, <laughs> work's been busy. Um, you know, the gym's too far. And in that moment, I thought, you know, I never thought they're not doing what I'm telling them to do. What I thought was, I'm not giving them information in a way that they feel is practical and applicable in their everyday life. I've got to do a better job. And in that moment was born something called the five-minute kitchen workout that I... I used on Doctor in the House, but I go through in detail in my book, which is really this idea of a strength workout that you can do in five minutes in your kitchen, right? You don't need an expensive gym workout. You don't need any equipment. You can modify it for any ability level, right? You don't even need to change your clothes, right? I'm removing the barriers to entry. So I I had this couple in their 60s who came to see me and they were actually worried about their over they were pretty good but they were wanting they were saying how can we reduce our likelihood of having problems with our brain as we get older you know we we we're, we're okay but we just want to do what we can and i went through the research on strength training and i said guys you know i don't have time you know we're not going to do that and it's not on our thing and i said have you got 10 minutes a week so what 10 minutes i said yeah have you got 5 minutes twice a week i said yeah okay so i taught them this 5 minute kitchen workouts right um, for their ability levels. I took my jacket off in my clinic and I, I was on the floor. I was showing them how to do it. And they were very skeptical. But they went away and they tried it, right? Four weeks later, they came back to see me and I said, how are you guys getting on? I said, hey, dog, we love it. We're now doing it upstairs every evening while we're running our evening bath. We do it t- for 10 minutes, six nights a week. So this is the couple who thought they didn't have time, energy, or the inclination to go to a gym to work on their strength. Yet by making it simple and achievable, by saying, just give me 10 minutes a week, right? Within four weeks, that has become 60 minutes of strength training per week. You know, I don't know what they're doing now. Or hopefully they're going to be doing more. But health has become overcomplicated. My whole approach is about simplifying it. I've got patients in their 20s doing my five-minute kitchen workouts, I've got patients in their 70s doing it, right? One of the, one of the exercises is a press-up, right? True, if we were on the floor now doing a press-up, that's a very difficult exercise. But you know what? Most people can do it against the wall, right? And this is what I try and do with everything I do with my patients in my clinic, 
on my TV show. In my book, there are literally, you know, hundreds of tips on how you can actually put these principles into practice in your life. These are tips that actually are not tips that you should do because I'm telling you to do them. You should do them because these are the tips that over 17 years of seeing tens of thousands of patients, these are the tips that work in real life. These are the tips that people are actually going to do. And when you get started and you incorporate at least a few things in all these categories, you're motivated just like this couple to increase it a little bit further Yeah, because you actually feel the difference. There's no bigger, if you're going to rely on willpower, you're only going to get so far. But if you do some things that you can incorporate fairly easily into your life and you feel incredible, which is what you're giving to your patients and your readers, it's going to motivate you to continue because it's not willpower. You genuinely feel good. Yeah. And, and, and the other point is that I really want to emphasize um, is don't overly focus on one area. Look, Drew, we've spoken about food and movement, right? And people have been hearing about food and movement for a long time now. But we should not forget the importance of sleep and the importance of relaxation. Um, because really, they have, in my opinion, equal impact on the body. In fact, you have this great quote that you shared yesterday at dinner, which I thought was amazing. You were sharing that sometimes you have a patient that comes in or people email you or hit you up on Instagram and they say, you know, uh, my diet is still like 5% off and they're killing themselves trying to get that last 5% in. But overall, they do a pretty good job. And you had this great quote, which was instead of trying to fix that last 5%, you recommend that people... I say you might be better off going to bed one hour earlier each night. You know, you're going to get much more benefit, much more bang for your buck, right, by shifting to a different pillar. And I see this all the time, right? We, you know, look, we're we're living in a great time now where there's so much information that, you know, a lot of doctors, a lot of healthcare professionals are putting out there on social media so that people can actually learn and empower themselves. But one of the things I see is that we're overly focusing on one area sometimes to the point where we obsess, whereas, you know, we've we've changed our diet, right? We've gone to Whole Foods, but, you know, is it okay if I have um, non-organic strawberries, doctor? Um, you know, we're, we're like, hey, look, if you take a step back and go, look, overall, right, if you examine these four key areas, if your food has improved 70, 80 percent, right, as I say, instead of going for that extra 5 or 10%, move on to another pillar. Find something easy and achievable there. That's how you really get this uh, rounded 360-degree approach that not only works for this week, but works for next month and works for next year. These things become sustainable. You know, sleep is so undervalued, especially now in society. You know, we, we think we haven't got time to sleep, you know. Sleep is so restorative, rejuvenating for the body. And there's a lot of research showing us now that sleep deprivation may be causative in the development of things like anxiety, depression, Alzheimer's disease. Right? I was chatting to uh, Matthew Walker, one of the world's premier sleep researchers here at Berkeley. Right? And he says there's really good research saying now that actually sleep deprivation might be the preliminary causative uh, factor that drives Alzheimer's disease. Well, let's think about that for a minute. If that is the case, why are we not giving our sleep health as much priority as the food that we're putting in our mouth, right? And I, I'm, I'm telling you this, Drew, after nearly 20 years of seeing patients, 
in the majority of cases, not all of them, but in the majority of cases, people struggling with their sleep are unconsciously doing something in their everyday lifestyle that they do not realize is negatively impacting their ability to sleep at night. And let's talk about some of those, you know, because I think when people think about sleep, it can feel like they're not always on the up and up of what they they need. Or our culture says, you know, oh, you know, if I don't get enough sleep now, I'm just going to make it up later, which now we know the research isn't going to happen. There's long-term damage that happens. It's long-term not... damage. So let's talk about sleep. You know, we're not getting enough, but also when we're actually sleeping, the, the, the depth and the quality may not be there. So what are some of the tips that you give to your patients uh, to help them in this area? Yeah. So look, there's so many practical tips that people can immediately apply to help improve their sleep. And, and I know this stuff works. You know, I've seen it with patients. I've, I'm getting so many reports back now from people saying, just I made these simple changes that I've read in your book and I'm sleeping now seven, eight hours a night. I haven't done that in years. And there's some simple things, right? Let's take caffeine, for example, okay? Everyone knows that caffeine keeps us up, right? But a lot of people are still drinking tea or coffee or green tea, right? Which has got caffeine in at 3, 4 p.m., 5 p.m., 6 p.m., right? One of my rules is enjoy your caffeine before noon, right? If you have got sleep issues, right, or you think you might want to sleep better, you, you, you want to improve your sleep health, give it a try. Try and have all your caffeine in the morning and see what happens because caffeine has got a long half-life. You know, for some people, if you have a cup of coffee at noon, right, a quarter of that cup of coffee is still going around your body at midnight. Now think about it for a minute. A lot of people wouldn't have a quarter cup of coffee just before they go to bed because they know that's a stupid thing to do for, for me if I want to sleep. But actually for some people, having that midday coffee is having the same impact. And I'm telling you, this sounds like a simple thing, but people will tell you, they'll say, hey, doc, I've always had coffee in the evening. Yeah, it's fine. It doesn't bother me. Really? Well, you know what? Our threshold can change in life. You know that idea of a threshold, right? Maybe when you were younger, you were quite far away from your threshold. So you had that reserve. You could have it. You got away with it. But maybe now you're older, you've got kids, you've got a busy job, you're stressed more, you're a lot closer to that threshold. So now maybe you can't tolerate that caffeine. And even actually, if you think you can tolerate caffeine in the evening, some good research showing that even if you're one of those so-called lucky people who can have a double espresso before bed, you're not accessing the same deep levels of sleep as if you had not had that. Okay, so coffee is a stimulant, right? If you are struggling... You reduce it, make sure it's before noon. And actually, if you really want to give it a go, try seven days without and just see what happens. Mm. In some cases, it's transformative. The other tip for sleep, you know, it's we need a bedtime routine. You know, you can't just do work emails and keep going at full pelt and then turn off your laptop and expect to, to fall asleep. You know, for, for any of your listeners who've got kids, what do we do with children before bed? We've got a bedtime routine, dim light, wind them down bedtime story. We don't put on a big thriller and give them sugar <laughs> just before bed and put a bright light on, right? Why do we as adults think we're any different? We need to wind down. And one of my little tips is at what I call a no tech 90. Can you for 90 minutes before bed, switch off all modern technology, right? I'm talking about smartphones, tablets, e-readers, right? Because that is two things. One is the blue wavelength light, Right, so blue wavelength light, in nature, we only get this in the morning, maybe in the early afternoon, but we only see this basically in the morning. Right? It signals to our body 
that it's daytime, that we should be awake. These electronic devices release blue light, right? And what happens is that one of the hormones we need to fall asleep is called melatonin, right? Blue light reduces levels of melatonin. Again, if we had a drug that was reducing our levels of melatonin, there would be an alarm, there would be a big warning on it saying, be careful, this reduces levels of melatonin in your body. Yet we've got a society now who are all looking at these devices right before we go to bed. And I'm saying, guys, give it a go, give it a try. So one reason is the blue light, but the second reason is it's the emotional noise that's coming into our brain day in, day out, right? If you want to wind down before bed and you're checking emails and you're reading, checking the news on Facebook and Instagram and whatever, right? You're just having this barrage of noise coming into your brain. It's not allowing it to switch off. So just switching that tech off and look, I'm a practical guy. 90 minutes is too much. Do you know what? Start with 10 minutes. Work up to 20 minutes, 30 minutes, right? Yeah, I'd love 90 minutes, but I know some people are going to listen and go, I can't do that. But once you start waking up with a deeper level of sleep, you're going to be like, it's so worth it. It is so worth it. So that's another tip. But there's so many more, right? I've got hundreds of practical tips of people, right? But the counterintuitive one is one of the chapters in my book is called Embrace Morning Light, right? So this is the idea that going outside in the morning can help you sleep in the evening, right? Because everyone thinks, what what am I doing just before bed? That's going to help me sleep. But we forget that actually a a big part of what dictates our health and and and, and when we sleep and how long we sleep for is what we call our circadian rhythm. That's our body's daily rhythm, right? Every organ in the body functions on a daily rhythm. Now, we have evolved to have a huge differential between our maximum light exposure and our minimum light exposure at night. So for example, if you go outside on a sunny day, right, you get exposed to about 30,000 lux. Lux is a unit of light, 30,000, right? If you go outside on a cloudy day, you get about 10 to 15,000 lux. If you go into a brightly lit office, you're getting about 500 lux, right? So let's think about this. A dark room at night should be zero lux, right? And many of us are going and working in offices all day And all we're getting is like we're going up from zero to 500, right? We've evolved to be outside where even on a cloudy day, we're getting up to 10,000 lux. So I've got patients who the only change they made is in the morning at some point, or even at lunchtime, if they couldn't fit it in the morning, they went outside for a 20 or a 30 minute walk. And suddenly they're sleeping better in the evening. And we all intrinsically know it. We know we feel good when we go outside. We know when we are there, it makes a difference. But sometimes we need the reminder from somebody like yourself, where we could say, wow, there's a doctor's actually telling me that there's a biochemical response. There's chemistry happening in my body. There's epigenetics going on where this truly makes a difference. Yeah. As I say, consciously change your lifestyle to unconsciously change your biology. It's beautiful. You know, we've talked about sleep a little bit and some of the great tips, and there's so many more in your book, uh, how to make diseases disappear. But I want to touch on the last one because this is a a key one. And uh, we talk about it in the docuseries, which is stress. Um, you know, give us a big picture on stress. And while we have a little bit more time here, let's talk about some of the tips that people can make that you've seen your patients embrace that can have a significant impact on their stress levels. Yes. So when we talk about stress, you know, it can mean a whole multitude of different things. But if you look around today, we're chronically stressed. You look around, everyone's, it's, it's almost common parlance now. You know, how you guys doing? You know, yeah, I'm good. I'm good, man. But yeah, I'm a little bit stressed out. You know, it's it's that common now because we're all feeling it. And I think that's because 
Um, we are just so busy. I think technology plays a huge part here. What happens, right, is that we have got... We just, stress is a good thing, right? First of all, it's important. Stress makes us be the best version of ourselves, right? We have evolved to be stressed. We've got a stress response for a very powerful reason. It's to, it's to help us... Uh, defend ourselves or, or run or, or attack. You know, in, in that moment when we might be being attacked by a lion, we need to ramp up our stress response and get all the fight or flight hormones going so that we can run faster. We've got better muscle strength. We can think sharper, right? This is great, but 30 minutes, one hour later, everything should come back down to normal, okay? But modern society is flipped, whereas many of us are living in fight or flight mode for the majority of the time. And occasionally... We go into relaxation mode. So we've evolved in a time where we would always pretty much be in relaxation mode. Occasionally, we'd have these episodes of stress. But now we live in stress, and it's punctuated by occasional moments of relaxation. We've inverted it, and it's having it's wreaking havoc on our bodies. It's wreaking havoc in a whole number of ways, okay? One of the ways it does this is to do with a hormone called cortisol, right? Cortisol is one of our body's primary stress response hormones. You want that to go up when you're stressed, but you also want it to come back down straight after. If cortisol is chronically elevated, right? So basically, if you're chronically stressed, all kinds of crazy things start happening in the body. Your blood sugar, you know, cortisol will release sugar into your blood because it's designed for in that moment when you need to run, you need more energy. You're releasing sugar into your, your blood so you can actually run faster and get away. But we know that actually chronic stress increases blood sugar, increases insulin resistance, which is what is basically the, the drive behind type 2 diabetes. And, and, and Drew, I've got patients. I've reversed type 2 diabetes in patients by not changing their diet, by changing their stress, right? It's really quite remarkable. When you understand that there are multiple factors that play a role in our health, and again, to simplify it, I look at these four factors. I think it's very easy for people to apply this four-pillar framework in their own life, right? Stress is a key part. Stress drives insulin resistance, but stress also damages your brain. Right? There's some really good studies which showing that cortisol, like many things, in small amounts, it increases your brain function or it improves the function of your hippocampus, which is the memory center of your brain. But as the cortisol increases and for longer, actually you start to deteriorate and you're, you start to kill the cells and damage the cells in your hippocampus. And so if you think about that we're struggling, yes, with Alzheimer's disease in society, but you know, middle-aged memory loss it's a very common problem now. Lots of people are struggling with their memory at a lot earlier age. And, and I know that cortisol and stress is playing a key role there. So what can we do, right? What can we do about this? Because, you know, I know what that feels like. I struggle with stress levels myself. And it's about putting in, scheduling in a few good practices in your, in your day that help get you back into relaxation states. You know, the first recommendation of my book is something called 15 minutes of me time, right? 15 minutes a day where you spend this time by yourself doing something that you, you want to do for yourself without a smartphone, right? This could be sitting in a cafe, just enjoying your drink and watching the world go by. Just being present. Being present. Noticing. Noticing rather than being in the cafe and also catching up on your emails and also making sure that you've sent uh, Instagram messages to who you need to and all this kind of stuff, right? And, hey, I'm not criticizing. I do that a lot, right? But I'm just saying that 
That bit of me time, what it does, it allows your stress response just to come back down. It allows your cortisol to drop. And in my book, I talk about this really this this patient who had Crohn's disease, right? She had Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, right? She was having horrendously bad gut symptoms. She was very frustrated with a specialist because the drugs that she had been given in the past were not working. She'd been seeing me for a little while. We changed her diet, right? Gave her some supplements, helped a lot, but we hit a plateau. I hadn't seen her for a while. She comes back and see me and she's incredibly frustrated. She says, doctor, what else can I do? And, and I thought, hey, you, you are like many of the women that I see in my practice, you know, you are doing everything for other people. You're a fantastic wife, you're a fantastic mother, but you have never got any time to yourself the whole week. So I said, you know what you have to do, or what I would like you to do? I said, I want you to have 15 minutes of me time every day, and I want you to find one thing a week that you, that you do that you love, right? And she chose salsa dancing. She came back four weeks later, and she had implemented the 15 minutes me time and salsa dancing. And, and before she left the consultation, she was like, is that it? You know, she was like, you, you've got to be kidding me. You know, what, where, what's the next supplement? What else have I got to do? I said, just, just hear me out. Go for this for four weeks. All I want you to do is concentrate on these two things. Four weeks later, her symptoms, her gut symptoms had gone down by 50%. Mm. I hadn't got rid of her condition, right? But the point is, our stress levels impact our gut, so instead of trying to directly tackle her gut, I was saying for her, if I applied that four-pillar framework on her, her diet was very good. She was pretty active. I thought, ah, she's not relaxing much at all. She's got high stress levels, actually. Let's start making progress there. And it's that synergistic approach that leads to these really good health outcomes. And so that taught me a lot. That, I was, I, that really, you know, I've read the research but that really showed me, wow, changing her stress levels has totally improved her gut health. And then that case of Devon, right at the start of the podcast, the boy who tried to harm himself, you know, just by reducing the amount of time on social media and having a bit of downtime, that helped his mental health. You know, another recommendation I make is a practice of stillness every day. You know, this could be meditation, this could be mindfulness, this could even be listening to your favorite bit of music right? It's just this idea of stillness, right? We don't need to overcomplicate it with, you know, what kind of meditation, you know, is that what's the best app to use, right? I'm a big fan of those things, but it's really this idea, if we broaden it out, we're too busy, we're always doing things, have a daily practice of stillness, right? And in the book, I give people many options. But what I love about listening to music is, I say, if you like music, right, choose your favorite tunes, listen to it for 10 minutes with headphones on, but keep your eyes closed, right? Lose yourself in the music. Do not be scrolling your social media feed at the same time, because then that becomes a meditation. That becomes a mindfulness practice. You know, if you want to use a, an app like Calm, Calm is one of my favorite apps. That's the meditation app I use at the moment. Hey, great. I love that. But you know what? Again, set the bar low. I have, with patients before, negotiated with them two minutes meditation a day. Right? They said, how much do I need to do? You know, I don't have time. I said, okay, you've got two minutes a day. I said, you've got two minutes to brush your teeth. Do you think you can meditate for two minutes a day? I said, yeah, okay. Right? And they made a, we made a commitment in the consultation that they're going to go and do two minutes a day. What happens is when you set the bar low, two minutes every day, you feel good because you're doing it. That increases motivation. And that two minutes very quickly becomes five, becomes 10, becomes 15. But if I said, you've got to do 20 minutes right, every day, 
It's going to really help you. There's some studies which show that it increases uh, the grey matter in your brain, right? Of course, that's information, that's knowledge. They know they should do it, but the amount of times where they don't is incredible. So I make it simple. It could be two minutes. And, and this is really what my approach is about because it can be overwhelming, true. A lot of people will be listening and going, there's so many different things I could be doing, right? It's overwhelming. Where do I start? And, you know, what I say to that is, look at this four-pillar framework, food, movement, sleep, and relaxation, right? Most of us intuitively know which pillar we need the most work in, right? Start there. Find one small thing there that you want help with and, and, and do that for the next seven days and see how you feel. You know, don't try and change to a whole food organic diet. Get eight hours sleep a night. Go to the gym five days a, five days a week. And also, you know, <laughs> you know, all these other changes you know, fine, if you want to do that, that's great. But just take it slow and build these things in so that these small changes very quickly become your new habits. And then your new habits very quickly become your health. And that consistency is really what matters because over a period of time, we'll continue it. And that's what I love about your work, Dr. Chatterjee. And I just so appreciate you coming on the podcast to simplify, simplify, simplify. It really makes anybody listening, no matter where they are in the world right now, truly feel empowered that, you know, there's always this insecurity that people have, which is that I'm already not doing enough. And if you've been dealing with health issues for a long time, this thing of like the self-blame of like, oh, I haven't made the best choices in the past. And why did I let my job take over me? And I didn't get enough sleep. So there's so much resistance, maybe guilt, guilt of how they've handled their health in the past. And here you are and you're giving people to say, hey, you're giving them permission to say, hey, let's let all that go. It's not serving us. And these simple little things are the way to build. Yeah. And I really, really, really appreciate that about you. Dr. Chatterjee, your book launched in the UK. It went to the top of the charts, not because there was this big marketing plan behind it, but because there's this grassroots movement of people really looking for this information. You now are launching the book here as a different title. It's called how to make diseases disappear. We've referenced it a few times. Uh, tell the readers a little bit more if they want to go deeper and they want to walk through this plan. When does the book come out? How can they find out more information? Yes, yeah, so Drew, the, the book in the U S and Canada, how to make disease disappear comes out on May one. And you know, the, the, it's really about empowering every single reader to become the architect of their own health, right? It's really about saying that health has become overcomplicated. This book aims to simplify it. And what I'm really proud of about this book is that I've literally given 25% of the book to each pillar, right? So I'm not just saying I give them equal priority. I am actually page by page giving them equal priority. I'm saying, look, these are the four areas I want you to think about, okay? And in each, in each of the pillars, there's five chapters, and each chapter is a recommendation or a suggestion of something you might want to do with your health, right? Now, I say suggestion rather than prescription. I'm not telling people what to do. I'm trying to give them information. I'm trying to inspire them with case studies from my practice, right, to say, look, when you make these small changes in these four key areas, this is how quickly you can feel better, you know, if you are tired of needing sugar and caffeine to get you through each day, this book will help you. 
If you want to prevent getting sick in the future and reduce your likelihood of getting an illness or a chronic disease, this book and approach will help you. If you've already got a disease, right, a diagnosis like an autoimmune disease or or a type 2 diabetes, for example, the principles in this book will certainly help you feel better. And in some cases, they'll help you reverse your condition, right? This book is applicable and works for everybody. If you are vegan, right, this book works for you. If you want to go all out paleo, this book works for you. And I've done this on purpose because I wanted this book to be a practical guide that simplifies health and works for every single person. If you're the CEO of a top company and you've got a high income, this book works for you. But if you live in a, in a, you know, with a low income and you struggle to make ends meet, this book will also work for you because pretty much every single intervention I recommend is free and is accessible to everyone. And I'm really proud about that because this is, you know, I've, I've worked in a lot of different arees. I've worked with affluent patients, but I've worked in very poor areas of society as well. And everyone's got the right to good quality health information. And the other thing that I think is unique about my approach is that I'm not expecting people to do all of the 20 chapters in this book. That would be impractical, right? And I actually say, you don't need to. In fact, a lot of my patients find that when they do about two or three in each pillar, that's enough to keep them under their own personal threshold, right? But some people get away with less. But the point isn't about having a perfect diet or a perfect gym routine. Instead of scoring five in food and five in movement, I'd much rather you score two in each pillar. The total score may be less with eight, rather than 10, but the balance would be greater. And that's what I think. That's where I think the magic happens in the human body is when you get that balance. The other, the other sort of thing I would say is if one of my recommendations, if you don't like, if you don't like that chapter, if it doesn't resonate with you, if you don't think you can fit that in, you know what? Don't do it, right? Move to a different one. Choose the ones that resonate with you. Choose the ones that you think you can do. Because I want to remove the barriers to entry. And I think that's why in the UK, this book is taking off and this approach is taking off is because it is achievable. Everyone looks at it and as they're reading it, they they want to make changes. They think, oh yeah, I want to do that. I want to do that one. And that's because it's full of, yeah, the science is there. But more importantly, the simple take home for the reader is, is just peppered throughout the book. And so you look, I'm, you know, if people have struggled with their health or they they found things too complicated before, I'd encourage them to check it out, take a look and see. Um, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with not only how many people have bought it in the UK, but how many people then tell me what it's done to them on social media and say, hey, look, I had to go and buy another four copies. I need to buy one for my parents, for my brother. I had to go and get one for my work colleague. And there's loads of doctors and uh, nutritional therapists and healthcare professionals who are now prescribing this book to their patients. They're keeping it in their surgery because it's one of, one of the radio interviews I did actually, the DJ on the BBC said to me, he said, you know what I like about this book is that it's, it's, it's a lot of common sense there, but it's almost like a blueprint for how to live well in the 21st century. And, you know, I think he, he sums it up there. That's what I've really tried to do. So, Yeah. I hope people get a chance to check it out. Well, you can find the link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And May 1st, it comes out. Uh, Dr. Chatterjee, we're so inspired by everything that you had to share here. And our listeners are just big fans of yours. Dr. Hyman and myself are big fans of yours, too. You're doing incredible work to get the message out there about 
medicine, lifestyle medicine, wellness, just good medicine, future 21st century medicine. And this is the evolution of medicine. And we really want to acknowledge you and appreciate you for everything that you've done and being part of the Broken Brain podcast and the series. Thanks for having me.